This is the Negotiate X Podcast, show number 37, part B. You're listening to Negotiate X Radio, helping you elevate your influence through purposeful negotiations. If you're here looking to learn about how to become a better negotiator in both business and life, then you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the others who have benefited from NegotiateX.com, your home for negotiations training and consulting online. Hey everyone, Nolan here. We're going to continue our conversation with Coach Reese in just a minute, but make sure if you didn't already listen to part A of this episode that you do that before listening to part B. Yeah, Andy, and, and something that you mentioned earlier was, you know, how important it is to be flexible. And so I'm wondering, kind of as we look at biases that you may have towards someone when they're doing something and you're comparing it to basically how you do something, there's in, inevitably going to be some biases. Yeah. So what kind of work do you do with your clients to effectively increase self-introspection but while you're simultaneously managing negative perceptions of others? It's a great question, and I appreciate it on a number of different levels. First of all, I, I'm not an expert in biases. You know, if I highly recommend, if you haven't read Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, I would highly recommend it. I think you guys have mentioned it before, too. And there's some great resources and lists I can provide the listeners that kind of list out what the biases are and what they mean. The way that I think about biases is kind of like the shadow side of, of thinking. And Carl Jung, uh, Jung talked about that too, you know. So how do I project myself to others, right? So I think that the one that I'll talk about, I just recently listened to it on a podcast, it's really profound to me is this idea that we have biased blind spots and we would have is called the introspection illusion. So when I'm coaching clients and I, if you hear someone say, well, I'm pretty self-aware, that's a red flag. That's a red flag because someone who thinks they're self-aware, just like somebody who thinks they know everything, probably doesn't isn't as self-aware as they think. And so, which relates to another type of uh, bias called the Dunning-Kruger effect. But going back to the introspection illusion is that the way that we judge ourselves is incongruent with how we judge others. And let's go back to the Chris Rock, Will Smith incident, right? And so, when we see, let's and we can look at them separately and objectively, right? So, let's look at Chris Rock for a second. Chris Rock obviously made an inappropriate joke towards Jada Pinkett's hair. She's got alopecia, so on and so forth. So you can look at it from that lens and you say, well, Chris Rock was wrong and I would never do anything like that. That's what we do, right? And so that, which is another form of bias, which is kind of character assassination. Well, like that guy's a jackass, kind of what people are reacting to and vomiting on social media, right? Now let's look, let's look at Will Smith, the same thing happens, right? You're like, Will Smith, he's this high character guy and he just completely ruined his reputation and he should have never got up and, you know, slapped Chris Rock in, in front of television and, and you see what's happening, right? I would never do anything like Chris Rock. I would never act inappropriately like that too. Well, let's hold on for a second. Chances are, and we may not have done it on the, the world stage and we may not have slapped and done things like that too, but chances are we've been a jackass. And in small ways or big ways, right? But how we see ourselves and how we judge others are completely different. We look at the 10% of the iceberg and we don't account for everything that's below the surface, right? But when we look at ourselves, we think we see the 90% of the iceberg and we don't see the rest of the 90% of the iceberg. And that's the, that is the hard truth that we have to understand as human beings and as leaders is that we are not omnipotent. We, there's no such thing 
as 100% self-aware. So how are you going to get feedback? More important, how are you going to turn that feedback into feed forward? And I think that's really important in terms of who you surround yourself with an executive board that people are going to tell you the truth, that are going to, they're going to do it in a way that is going to allow you to get better, that you trust, and that you approach thing, everything that you do as an opportunity to be able to get better versus be defensive and realize that I've got it all figured out or I'm like the best things to slice bread to negotiate, right? Uh, that's awesome. Thanks, Andy. And I might just dig a little deeper here, Andy. Other things you do to increase the, I mean, how do I, how do I increase my, my self-awareness when I, when I think I'm self-aware, I, how can I become more aware of my 90%? And then I guess, how does that translate more, it, more I can do to translate into understanding somebody else's 90%. Yeah. I mean, the first thing I, I would say is, and, and again, this is the only practice that I actually mandate when I'm working one-on-one with clients, athletes, whoever you guys listed is like to, to journal. And I think to be reflective, like we know the memory is really flat fallible. So do it in the moment. You know, you could do this in like, pre post negotiation too is like, Hey, where I'm capturing my thoughts, like in real time. And then what's happening is by the tactile movement the research shows that I'm actually writing it down. It's not about going back and referencing the notes. That's why you and I as army, former army officers got these like shelves full of green notebooks, right? How many, right. how many times have you pulled those <laughs> notebooks out? Yeah, yeah. No. Yeah. Nolan's know, got one. Our boy Joe Byerly from the green notebook. It's not about, <laughs> it's not about recalling it. It's about being in the present moment. And it's about that, that is a performance that has helped you solidify things into your long-term memory that can become habit formation, right? In terms of what I do. So that is really one. The other one, I think, like I mentioned too, is like, you know, who are the people in your life that are, you can trust that are going to give you different perspectives? Like, and I love the, I love the Mount Rushmore approach or the executive board of your life. And then there's some great, you know, if you read your Mount Rushmore, like who are the four people based on the, and, and each of those traits of the presidents, Teddy Roosevelt's one of my favorite ones, obviously, who have a perspective that they're going to give you, whether it's like from, you know, for me, it's the different hats that are maybe from a father standpoint, maybe from um, a leader standpoint, maybe from a peer standpoint, maybe from a former subordinate standpoint, they're going to give you this perspective to maybe help fill in the gaps that we ultimately have as human beings, right? Knowing that we're never going to be 100% self-aware, but if we're willing to First of all, get uncomfortable with this idea that, you know, I'm going to make mistakes and then learn from it. That gives you the opportunity to get better every time you go enter a negotiation or enter anything that you consider a performance from mundane to masterful. Well, you know, Andy, so, you know, you, you shared earlier that you, you went through negotiation training several times during pre-deployment readiness. As I shared kind of in the intro, you know, you worked with me uh, when I was teaching at the Air Force Academy uh, with our negotiation final exam and, and have a really good sense of, of, of the kind of our approach. Given the skills and your extensive background in mental performance, where, where do you think negotiation training programs could learn from your field and, and could improve? I mean, I would love to have interdisciplinary collaboration. Like this is a great start, right? Like you guys have this awesome depth of knowledge, skills, and experience and from the interpersonal side. And I have it from the interpersonal side and we're bringing those worlds together. And I think what, what we're seeing is the rise of what I call the paraprofessional. It's the Swiss army knife. If you read the book range, it talks about being a generalist. And I think that the, what's, what's great is that we have all this information at our fingertips that allows us to synthesize all of these otherwise would be intangible skills that we could now measure and that we can train, that we can practice with intentionality and deliberateness that make us better at what we do. And I think when you are able to marry them up together, it's just this, it's this incredible combination that I think is really, really valuable. Unfortunately, they're not trained in tandem. 
they are held separately. They're in silos, right? They're not brought together because they come from different disciplines. So what I would like to see is a more interdisciplinary approach. And I would not only just like to see an interdisciplinary approach, but I'd like to see it being delivered and, and accessible to a lot of people through digital means. And I think you guys are trying to do that, which I commend you to, because what's really cool post-pandemic is this, you know, we're now working remotely. We're able to reach more people and train and educate people better. What if we were able to make negotiations and mental skills training more accessible to the to every person who needs it? It's not just for the elite and the very few, you know, and I'll never forget. I, I was this close, guys, to getting me and my my uh, fire support crew to go to, to Harvard to go take a negotiations course, you know, and it got canceled the last minute because I think they figured out that it was probably boondoggle in disguise. But that's another story. Uh, <laughs> you know, I should have gone, gone up the road to the Air Force Academy had you teach us, Aaron. But my, my point is, it's like, you know, not everybody has access to this important skill set. They don't have access to my skill set either, right? The people that need it the most from my middle school standpoint are the coaches and athletes in the middle school and high school level. That's where it begins. Imagine if leaders could get access to this skill set, not when they're an executive, but when they're a junior emerging leader into a new role, you know, when they're uh, coming out of West Point, which is so awesome. The West Point negotiations project is there. And so those are the really, or I call them the axiom moments, right? When I'm making a transition to a different role or to a different organization, those axiom moments in our in our lives and our careers is when you really need this the most, I think. So having access and democratizing this skill set is really important. Well, let's let's continue this because uh, Andy had said that basically trying to build the pair professional here. Um, so what else can we take from your field and apply, especially when it comes down to the preparation aspect of negotiations is something that Aram and I lean heavy on when, when we interact with any of our clients. And that's to basically place a large emphasis on preparations and especially preparing for difficult conversations or, or really thing, uh, challenging conversations, anything yep. of that sort. So what can we take from, from your field and apply it there? I think a really good one that maybe a little bit out of the box for our listeners is this idea of using imagery for bringing it into our rehearsal, right? So the idea of imagery, like some people call it visualization, but it's, it's, the ability to be able to use your imagination and to make it vivid, personal, and powerful to create these images in your mind that are almost as good as actually physically practicing it, right? Actually going through the motions, right? So if you're able to use the skill of imagery, we bring in all your senses. So bring in your sight, bring in your smell, bring in the taste, bring in the feel. And you know, if we have context, you know, the context then allows us to be provide a mental framework for what this looks like and what I want the negotiation to look like. So you think about just like, hey, if I was doing if I was doing a squat, I can see myself do the perfect squat. If I was a pitcher, I could just see myself doing the perfect pitch. If I was performing a surgery, I could see myself every single motion you know, going through that and to do executing it perfectly. You can do the same thing in terms of how you mentally rehearse and do reconnaissance of what's gonna actually happen. And the better you get at that, you're actually changing the structure of your brain through the idea of neuroplasticity. And there's a lot of research that goes into this. And, and what's cool is that I saw Green Berets do this, right? They treated what they were about to go do, is their movement to a KLE or a Shura, and then the movement back, and they use it during their rehearsal of concept, the rock drill, right? Well, during your rehearsal, can you imagine incorporating an imagery both individually and collectively together using all of your senses to be as vivid, personal and powerful, and, and then incorporating that into your preparation 
for what you're about to go do with the Gitmer people. It's a really powerful tool. And then on the flip side, you use imagery on the backside too. Now I'm individually going back through and reviewing the game film because we don't always have the foot, you know, the eye in the sky doesn't lie, right? Yeah. You know, but if I am able to use this most powerful movie studio that's ever known to man, that's between my ears, I can look back and reflect on what just happened to be able to synthesize information that could be useful for me and my team. And so I think using the use of imagery has all kinds of different, I think, applications that we could use in the in the four phases to get ready and improve in our ability to negotiate. So let's just go a little bit further because I'd love for you to coach me. Let's imagine that I have um, a tough negotiation tomorrow with a supplier that I'm I'm really heavily dependent on to be able to produce a widget that my customers need. And and boy, the the last time I engaged with this person, they were. Uh, incredibly difficult. We've yeah. worked together for a long time, but it's always really tr stressful, very tense. Um, a lot, maybe they play a lot of games. How do I apply what you just said to get ready to have a better conversation? Well, I think it would just, it would start off with is we're going to kind of frame, we're going to like, just let's just talk through it. Right. So we're going to have a talk through. Right. So let's just do some role play. Right. You know, so like, Hey, I'm, I'm me and you're, you're going to be the tough customer, right? And the I love the tough, tough customer, right? Cause we've, we experienced that too. I don't know if you remember when I was the, remember I was the, the AMP, I was the police officer. Yes. Yeah. yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. You did. Yeah. You yeah, yeah. I love being, I love being the tough customer, right? Cause I try to get a reaction out of, out of the, out of the cadets <laughs> Air Force Academy. It has so much fun doing that. Right. But like, you know, you, you play the tough customer, right? And then we're just war gaming. Right. And then we're, or what's called red teaming in the civilian world, right. To where, you know, I'm going through scenarios and how I'd act, react, and then, then we're pressing pause. And then, and now I'm giving you feedback on what just happened, like in, in an open-ended way where I'm getting you to think on your feet, right? And, you know, it's just like anything, right? If I make the practice harder than the actual negotiation is, by the time I've trained and shifted to the trusting mindset, it's easy. I'm just letting my, I'm just letting my interpersonal skills out, right? Because I'm ready and I know I'm ready and I'm confident, I'm projecting confidence in a humble and authentic way, right? But then everything that I've done has now gone through all the potential, the pace plan, the primary alternate contingency and emergency action reactions as far as what could happen, right? And inevitably Murphy's gonna show up, right? And we always know that, right? But like, if I'm psychologically flexible because I've gone through the difficult discomfort in the preparation, the likelihood I'll be more effective is gonna be self-evident. So you're a mental skills coach. I, I'm gonna assume you've never made any sort of mistake when you're applying these concepts yourself. Oh my gosh. Um, and, and that you are, you are the epitome of perfection. And, and of course I'm, I'm joking, but you know, I would, I think sometimes it's, it's helpful for our listeners to hear, you know, can you share an example of a time when maybe you failed to apply some of the key concepts? What did you learn from that? And then as the follow-up, you know, just give it to you now, which is what's the time that you look back up and you're like, yeah, I really had a lot of success because I applied what I know and maybe just tell us why that was so, so successful. So something you consider a failure, something you consider a success. No, I mean, oh my gosh. I mean, here, here's a little trade secret. Don't tell anybody is that, you know, everybody's in psychology is kind of crazy you know, <laughs> and we got something to work on, right? It's just like anything. And oh, by the way, coaches are the we're almost the worst, generally speaking, at applying what they, what they teach. No, but uh, I'm a work in progress. Just ask my wife. I'm a fixer upper, whatever you want to call it, you know? And so, uh, <laughs> I think as a young leader, like I talked about like that temper, right? And I think when I started to, I made it, I didn't really have a very good platoon sergeant. So remember at West Point, we had the, we were led to believe we had this nice shining armor, this platoon sergeant that we're supposed to shut up and listen to. 
the promised land. The land <laughs> I didn't get that guy, right? Staff Sergeant Leatherman was not a knight in shining armor. He was a turd who drove a purple scooter to work and was absent most of the time. So I was left flapping, right? And so like, I, I didn't know how to count, hold people accountable the right way, right? And so I was trying to be friendly and, and I got walked all over, frankly, you know, and so, you know, and so, yeah. and, and I, I was flapping. And then by the time I came back from the deployment, you know, had having that success again, I started to get confidence, but then I overcorrected now in terms of like, I didn't have that NCO presence to help me with the accountability piece. Hmm. And when I would like hold people accountable, you know, I would do it the wrong way. And so like, I just understand that course correction, like is an area where on how to treat people, you know, when they make mistakes and hold them accountable the right way is an area where I just really screwed up really badly. And I, and again, it kind of goes back to the times where I, I've lost my cool when I've been in those situations to where like something was very hurtful that happened to me, or you know that something's wrong, you know? And so, and, and you, you get the knife hand effect kind of going on. And so learning how to step back and self-regulate and then create space is another thing too. I think and a success story, you know, in, in the military, we talk about being tactically patient all the time. Yeah. Since I retired, I don't know about you, Aaron, or, or what we think, Nolan, but like, I look back and I had no idea what the hell strategic patience meant. Hmm. What I mean by that is like being, thinking deep in space and time and letting the game come to you. And I think hmm. it's really important for us to understand in terms of how we enter in our connections with people and how we enter in these relationships as being long-term not transactional and not even relational, but being true connections, right? Even as for just a moment, because the part that I did well is like I, when I entered in baseball, it was like I was wearing my white belt all over again. I was starting all over. There's no, I don't know there's any other veterans. I'm, I'm in this space I've never been in before. You know, I haven't played baseball since I was high school. It's a whole nother level, right? And I was in the deep end in terms of deliberate discomfort. And uh, the best advice that I got was from a really good friend, shout out to Ben Freakley. You guys recognize the name Freakley, famous general and brothers that serve in the military. Ben did not, but he supported the Army as a mental skills coach, worked for the Blue Jays for a long time, now supporting veterans with fit ops. And he said, Andy, I think, you know, what you need to do is just let the game come to you. I'm like, what the hell do you mean by that? You know, you like Yoda or something? Like, what is this? Let the game come to me. And I was like, build it, they will come. Was this, was this field of dreams? What are we doing? So I think what he meant is like, hey, just to show up and listen. Shut your mouth and listen and be available and shag balls and have conversations by the cage and hit fungos and have lunch with the guys and don't worry about doing anything. And I think when I looked at my military career, it was like, you're on the time clock as soon as you show up as a leader. Like I got two years to make an impact or less. Right. And, and I got to make it happen at all costs, buy through with, let's just make it happen, right? Well, when you're entering in a, a relationship that involves connection, especially as a middle skills guy, you have to have trust. It's the most important thing that you have. If you don't have trust, nothing else matters, right? So I had to earn that trust from the guys as an outsider. And I think that what I learned in spring training over the course of three weeks in, in Arizona, it was just really a masterclass in life that I have now trying to take in everything that I do. And that is to uh, let the game come to me. Sometimes when you're, you're performing, it's, it involves doing nothing. And I think sometimes when you're most effective in negotiating, you're not doing anything. You're letting them, you know, it's almost kind of like this uh, interpersonal Aikido that's happening, right? Um, to where you're you're accepting and kind of deflecting. I know I'm getting all California woo-woo on you guys, but I think <laughs> <laughs> it's really true in practice, right? And I think if you just sometimes just slow down 
and stop trying so damn hard, you know, that's when things, when cool things happen. Thanks. Yeah, that's powerful because uh, I think we always talk about tactical patience, but really talking about the strategic patience is a different mindset there. So, yeah, I appreciate sharing that. So, Andy, this is a podcast that is all about elevating your influence through purposeful negotiation. So as we start to close out this podcast, is there anything that Aaron and I didn't ask you that you want to share with our audience? Ooh, ask me. Um, what's your, I, I have a question for you guys. Like what's your favorite book when it comes to anything having to do with what I'm talking about? How do you guys mentally prepare for the negotiation? Well, so, I mean, I love in terms of maybe, you know, kind of from the psychology field, anything written by Brene Brown, a lot of her word, uh, her works challenge, challenge my thinking. Um, and I try to bring some of that into the negotiation realm. And then, and then in terms of the, the things that we often talk about where a lot of our thought process, so getting to yes, you know, difficult conversations, the HBR guide to negotiating. Uh, those are some works that really help frame a, a new mindset, a new approach, discipline around preparation, the rehearsal piece you're talking about, how thinking about how we measure success. And then really what you led with, which is the mindset shift helps us to make better decisions at the table, which which ultimately is what what I want to do, right? If I'm going to elevate my performance um, and get that upper range of performance, I need to be able to make better decisions. And there's a lot before that that impacts it so cool and then one of my favorite books and we actually was able to to bring him on to the show is gary nestner with stalling for time just really understanding the role that the negotiator can play when it is a life or death kind of situation and how basically stalling for time just inevitably is giving is giving you the negotiation or the negotiator more headspace. It's giving the tactical team more time to prepare and, and talking through that with Gary was pretty powerful. And so definitely that's a, that's one that comes top to mind right now. And I think these are all great suggestions too. I think the, my one I would add in there is a, uh, the idea about motivational interviewing, um, which is just a, I, I, hmm. as a coach, I wish that I knew what the hell that was. I was introduced to it right before I became a mental skills coach and it, it really, what is, is the art and science of how to ask really good questions, how to guide conversations. So I think it's a really good complimentary skill. Coaching athletes to, to be their best is kind of my Bible. And I think it's a really good uh, approach. Like how can you approach negotiation like a coach? Um, and so that's uh, that's one I'd recommend too. But hey, all, all the tools you can add in the, the toolkit, you know, are, are just going to make you make you and others better. So just keep, keep treating all these interpersonal and interpersonal skills and negotiating like a performance and you're going to go far. Andy, I am going to ask one more question. I know, I know Nolan wants to take us in a round, round, uh, kind of wrap up, but you know, we, we talk a lot about how these skills show up in our personal lives. You share yeah. a success and failure, your husband, your father of four, your yeah. boy scouts volunteer. So you work with young people, yeah. you have some young people in your household. And again, I no expectation that you always get it right. How do you try to apply these things just in kind of that more familial or um, just in terms of influence youth perspective, what, what can we learn um, in terms of just maybe a broader application there? Yeah, there's a couple of thoughts come to mind. I mean, kids are just the best negotiators. I mean, and I think when you think about like human beings are designed to negotiate, like just look at kids, you know, I mean, they, kids are just the best at just manipulating, you know, especially my daughter. Oh my God. Like she's got me, you know how it is. Like, you guys know how it is. If you got a daughter and you're, you're screwed. Like she's gets whatever she wants. That's right. And so uh, 
she's a really good at it as well too. I think this is really interesting one from a coaching standpoint, athletically. Like, I think a youth sports side coach under nine rugby, right? And it's a contact sport, and this is just on my mind. And I think, like, you know, when you're in a contact sport, like playing through injuries is like, you know, kind of a big deal, right? And they're experiencing this for the first time, and they're trying to make decisions, you know, about hey, do I do I suck it up and continue to play? or to come back out too, right? And I think as coaches, we had to enter in, we had to enter in what our stance was. And, and what we came up with was like, hey, when in doubt, sit it out, right? And this because came because we entered in like a, a difficult situation. We were in a tournament last weekend. I had a young player, you know, uh, I want to get into the terminology. She's like, she'd be like the quarterback, but she's really small. We're playing another team, a bunch of big boys, right? And the dad who wasn't really familiar, he pulled me aside and said, hey, I'm really worried about my daughter. And my first reaction was like, hey, don't, you know, I understand that. Don't, don't understand see your daughter. And then I pushed back and I, I kind of created space. And then I allowed him to talk. He says, I'm just worried about my daughter's, my daughter's health. I think she's under overmatched and so forth. And I, just me taking that moment to show empathy and so kind of shut him down. Like, hey man, we got this. Allow me to kind of see it from a fatherly perspective and be like, hey, look, I totally understand. Like, we're not playing the World Cup here. All right. So like, what do you think we just set her out? And, you know, he was like, well, let's just wait and see. And so, so our goal in mine was for the health and safety and welfare of the kids. That was the goal. And that little micro negotiation that happened. Right. Mm-hmm. But it would have been very easy for me to say that as a coach to, to stay into my position, which would have been, well, we coach her the right technique and I know she's tough, so she's going to be just fine. Right. That would be, yeah. so for me to, to take away his position would undermine him and his choice as a father which he still has a lot of influence over the situation too. So by, I think by doing that, I co-opted him. And I think he's willingness to be able to maybe assume a calculated risk with his daughter, you know, we didn't play that team, but I think it, 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 it created a discussion that we hadn't had before as coaches in terms of what were the non-negotiables when it comes to injuries, right? Mm-hmm. Hey, look, so head, head and spine injuries, no way. I mean, you know, there's no way we're not even negotiating that too, but like for every situation, you got a rolled ankle, you got a whatever, we're going to have a little micro negotiations going on. I'm going to observe the kid's going to tell me I'm going to get a second opinion through the team mom. And then we're going to make a decision that's best for the child. Right. You know, and best for the team at the same time. Right. So I think that would be a good, a good example of like some little micro negotiations that are happening with me that I think about. Cool. Thanks. Well, Andy, before I kick it over to Aram uh, to kind of highlight his takeaways from this episode. I just want to say thank you so much for your time. Thanks for coming on the podcast. I know that uh, we learned a lot and, you know, Aaron and I say this a lot, this is going to be one of those episodes that you got to go back, listen two or three times to really be able to pull out everything that you were able to provide us. So thank you so much for, for everything, for showing yeah, up. Thanks for really dressing up. I appreciate you, man. Stay classy. That, <laughs> yep. Thanks. Appreciate hey, it. Here's what I'm going to say is go army beat Navy. I don't get to say that on the program too often, but have an army football uh, player on. Thanks for joining us, Andy. And listen, so many things to take away. I hope people, you know, we are calling this negotiating from the inside out. We, we take ourselves on, we can make better decisions, influence others. Uh, we, if we're going to uh, work with others, then by with and through, as you think about managing supplier relationships or any customer relationship, our ability to practice these intrapersonal skills will enhance our ability to practice interpersonal skills better. And then I just think, you know, what Andy was saying around uh, our process to negotiation tendency to have some, you know, I think what you called introspection, blind spots, 
And, uh, you know, how, where are we getting feedback? Uh, what are we doing around rehearsing? Uh, what are we doing around journaling? Those are just good practices that we can take from, from Andy's profession and, and apply to the field of negotiation too. So again, thanks my friend for being on with us. Thanks brother. Love you. You know that. That's it for us on today's podcast. Uh, if you could please uh, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast, we greatly appreciate it. Helps us grow, helps us get in front of other listeners, and and helps pass on these things on how to improve our skills, how to be better leaders at the end of the day. If there's anything that you want us to cover, please send us an email at team at negotiatex.com. Uh, we'll be happy to cover it. And you know, if, if you and your organization are looking to get any training regarding negotiations, you have any big actual negotiations coming up you need you know someone else to to help out with in a consultant form by all means reach out to us we'll be happy to to dig into that for you so appreciate it we'll see you in the next episode thank you for listening to negotiate x radio helping you elevate your influence through purposeful negotiations if you're here looking to learn about how to become a better negotiator in both business and life then you're in the right place be sure to join the others who have benefited from NegotiateX.com, your home for negotiations training and consulting online.